let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus 33 this morning. Exodus 33, and we're going to begin to read at verse 12. As we're turning that up, don't forget that on our website, you'll be able to get all our podcasts. So uh, if you missed the session, you can check it out there. Um, So Exodus chapter 33 and verse 12. This is God's word to us, and we know that we can trust it completely because it is his word. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you, in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this, this nation is your people, And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And then the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone, like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So, Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning, and he went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and their children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go to the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your 
inheritance. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us here today. Uh, good morning. Uh, look, there's the lake. How lovely. Um, be really helpful if you turn to uh, Exodus uh, 33 uh, or thereabouts uh, this morning. Uh, but let me pray. Father, as this morning we hear your word, we pray that we might see your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If you could have all the benefits of being a Christian without the demands of knowing God, would you take it? So you can be forgiven, you can have eternal life, uh, but without God without holiness, without having to worry about obedience and holiness. Is that a good deal? Is it a better deal than demands of obedience? Uh, in this final session, I'm afraid it's the saddest meal in the book of uh, Exodus, but I hope that actually when we see how God responds, uh, it'll send us out full of rejoicing. At the beginning of Exodus 32, uh, Moses is up on the mountainside receiving instructions from God, instructions for the worship of God. And at that very same time, down on the plain, the people are worshipping an idol. They've, they've come and they've kind of gathered around Aaron, badgering him to make us gods who will go before us, they say. And so Aaron creates a golden calf. And the next day they hold a festival. And we read in Exodus 32, verse 6, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Not so very long ago, the elders of Israel saw God. They went up the mountain, you remember this? They saw God and they ate and drank. And now just a few days later, the people eat and drink, supposedly in a God's presence. But this time it includes an orgy of sex and violence. That, that word revelry is it's not good, okay? It wasn't a good time to be a woman. Let's put it like that. In fact, the word calf is, uh, it's actually in the original language, it's a little bit more, it's a little less specific. And when the, the psalmist in Psalm 106 reflects on this, he describes it as a bull. And uh, I think, uh, you know how the, the Bible teaches us that we become like what we worship. The people have become like rutting bulls. Brutish. Beastly. You know, just a few chapters ago, the, the representatives of God's people ate and drank in God's presence. And now we get this kind of dark parody of that as they eat and drink in a God's presence. In verse 8 of chapter 32, God says that they have been quick to turn away. That's the word that's used, quick. But that's not how the people see it. 
Verse 1 says, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain. So long, such a long time. These are the people that have encountered the presence of God at Mount Sinai. They have heard his voice boom across the plain. Their elders have eaten in his presence, yet they perceive their problem to be the absence of God. Now, it may be that they want this calf to replace God, but I think it's more likely they want this calf to represent God. Obviously, in direct contravention of the second commandment, but never mind. They say in verse 1, they want gods who will go before us. It's a language, actually, that earlier on in Exodus that has been used of God. He has gone before the people, leading them out. But what they want is a God or a version of God they can see. That's the key issue, I think, in these chapters, 32, 33, 34. Seeing God. How is it that we can see God? And then after the kind of riot stroke orgy has been quelled, God makes the people an offer. He will give them the land as promised. He will send an angel to drive out its inhabitants. But in chapter 33, verse 3, he says, but I will not go with you. You remember, if you were here last night, we were looking at how God... uh, said, make a sanctuary that I might dwell among you. Well, now that, as it were, that project is cancelled. They can have the blessings of God without the challenge of God's presence, without the challenge of God himself among them. It's one solution to this problem that we've kept bumping into of how a holy God can dwell amongst sinful people. At verse 5 of chapter 33, if you've got your Bibles open, God says, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Remember, it echoes the language at Mount Sinai where God says, you mustn't step on the mountain, otherwise I might break out against you. We saw it symbolically kind of embodied in the architecture of the tabernacle if you were here last night. The sin of the golden calf has only kind of amplified the problem. God burns with holy intensity. And so it's deadly dangerous to have God living among you. And so here's one option. Here's one solution. You can have the promised land, but I will not go with you. So what do you think? Is that a good offer? All the benefits of God without the hassle of holiness. You can have your ticket to heaven without the demands of obedience. Does that sound like a good offer? Perhaps in a sense that's what you want. You you would like God to bless you, to forgive, to protect, to provide a spouse or a job, to provide good health. But you don't really want God himself. Now, to their credit, the people of Israel, who in the book of Exodus are rarely examples of virtue, they do get it. They do get what's at stake. Chapter 33, verse 4 says that when the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn 
and no one put on any ornaments. And then we get this little aside where it describes how Moses would go and speak with God. And I think it's there to show us what's at stake. Is God going to live among his people or not? Do we really want God's presence? Or would his absence make life easier? And let's pick up the conversation at verse 14. Let me read verse 14. Or from verse 14, the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Now, at first glance, in English, the logic looks a little bit odd there. I don't know if you felt that. Uh, The Lord says, my presence will go with you, and then Moses says, well, if your presence doesn't go with us, what's that all about? Well, it's because actually in verse verse 14, uh, it's singular. With you, my presence go with you is singular, and then Moses in verse 15 responds in plural. So let me try and translate that, rephrase it in a way that brings out what the point of what's being said. The Lord says, my presence will go with you, Moses, and not with all those people over there. And Moses replies, if your presence does not go with us, me and the people, then what's the point? Now, in my view, this is the high point of Moses' career. And, I, and by the way, you know, it's a career of quite a lot of high points. For one thing, he remains completely committed to God's people. He, you know, he gets it all. You know, he is offered it all, but he, he refuses unless it also comes to God's people. And then second, he understands with absolute clarity that the ultimate blessing of God He's God. He's God himself. Moses wants God, not just just the benefits of God. He wants God. And Moses is willing to turn down those benefits if they don't come with God himself. 30 years ago, I got married. What did I get on on my wedding day? I tell you, I got about £100, a few dresses, and some Jane Austen novels. When my wife said, all I have I thee endow, that's what I got. Uh, To be fair, she didn't get a lot more, so, you know. (laughs) I didn't marry my wife so I could get my hands on some dresses and Jane Austen novels. What I got from our marriage was... My wife. I got Helen herself, my favorite person in the world. I got a new relationship. Now listen to some words from Martin Luther. He says, faith unites us with Christ in the same way that a bride is united with her husband. Our sins, death, and damnation now belong to Christ. 
all, uh, all I have I thee endow. While his grace, life, and salvation are now ours. For if Christ is a husband, he must take on himself the things that belong to his bride, and he must give to her the things that are his. Not only that, he also gives us himself. Not only that. We get all the blessing. When, we, when, we, when you become a Christian, and you are united with Christ, you get all the blessings of Christ. Not only that, he gives us himself. It's lovely, I love it. Best of all, we get Christ. And Moses gets it. Moses understands this. And so, as it were, he holds out for God himself. The glory of salvation is the glory of God. But how is it that we see the glory of God? That's, that's the issue at stake here. How do we see the glory of God? First answer, the glory of God is seen in God's Son. Moses, the next thing that happens in the little narrative, in the little conversation that we have here, is Moses makes this extraordinary request in verse 18. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on those whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on those whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by... I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Show me your glory. That's what Moses says. That's what he wants. More than anything else, he wants to see the glory of God. And God's response is, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. The thing is, Moses' request is not straightforward. You cannot see my face, says God. No one may see me and live. So instead, what God does is he kind of arranges for Moses to hide in a cleft or a cave in the rock. And then God himself covers Moses' eyes and passes by. Four times in this little section, we're told that God is going to pass by. And then Moses can see his back. And I think the idea there is, I sort of, I'm, I'm realizing I'm getting old, it's, you all look so young. Um, in the old days when we had fluorescent light bulbs, remember fluorescent light bulbs? Uh, and you switch them off, they would glow for a little while afterwards before they sort of finally died down. Anybody remember this? Or just, yeah, good. Maybe, maybe, anyway, no, I won't say that. That'd be rude. Okay. Uh, or sometimes when you're looking at a bright light and then you close your eyes, you can still see the glow on your retina. I think it's something like that that's going on here. God is going to pass by and with, with Moses with his eyes covered. And then when his hands are released, what he's going to see is the kind of afterglow of God's glory. Some kind of ongoing disturbance in the, uh, in the energy waves of light or the energy particles of life. Who knows? Anyway. Moses sees God's glory, or at least the afterglow of God's glory. Now, let's jump forward a few hundred years. Do you remember the low point 
in the life of the prophet Elijah. After the high point, which is Mount Carmel, where he has this great set to with the prophets of Baal, they have this sort of contest, and God sends fire down. After that, Elijah finds himself still being threatened by the evil queen Jezebel, and he goes into a kind of emotional tailspin. What happens next? Well, we're told that Elijah traveled 40 days through the wilderness to Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is just another name for Mount Sinai. So he travels 40 days to Mount Sinai. Does that ring any bells? And then we're told that when he got there, he went into a cave. Except it's actually, literally, he went into the cave. It's not any old cave. It's the cave on Mount Sinai. What's the cave on Mount Sinai? There's only one other cave, you know. It's the cave, it's the same word that's used to describe where Moses was. Elijah is standing where Moses stood. And as Elijah is standing where Moses stood, the Lord says, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. It's the same language that was used at Sinai. The Lord passes by. He passes by to reveal his glory. And then Elijah encounters God, not in the wind or the earthquake or the fire, but in a voice. Just as Moses heard the name, God speak his name to him. Now let's go forward to few more hundred years. Come with me now to the 12 disciples, straining at the oars, as we were reading in Mark 6, in the middle of a storm on Lake Galilee. Where's Jesus? Do you remember? We just read it. He's on a mountainside. He's gone up on the mountainside to pray. What happens next? Jesus sees them, and we're told he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by. At first sight, it looks like Jesus has sort of been callously indifferent to their plight. He's going to, just going to pass by and ignore them. But no, nothing could be further from the truth. After all, he's just walked through wind and wave to, to be with them. Now, this is language taken straight out of the stories of Moses and Elijah. Jesus is about to pass by to reveal his glory to them. That's what his people need. They need to see his glory. That's what it was that reassured Moses' doubts. That's what it was that lifted the spirits of Elijah. That's what will calm the fears of the disciples. The disciples, however, think he's a ghost, and they cry out in alarm. So Jesus says, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And the words, little phrase, it is I, it's literally, I am. I am the divine name revealed to Moses at the burning bush and then repeated to him on the mountain. I am the Lord, the Lord, the covenant Lord of Israel, the, the eternal God. Okay, so far so good. The disciples' experience matches the experience of Moses and Elijah. 
But there is one big difference. Where is Jesus at the beginning of the story? Up on a mountainside. Just like God before Moses and Elijah. But where is Jesus at the end of the story? He's in the boat with the disciples. Climbs into the boat with them. The God of Mount Sinai has come down from the mountainside to be with his people. The eternal God has taken on human flesh to live among us. The word became flesh, as John 1, and made his dwelling among us. The word dwelling there is literally tent or tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us. We, and then John says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. What Moses longed to see, we have seen in the person of Jesus. The God of Mount Sinai has come down to be with us, to be with you. God has pitched his tent among us. God in Christ shares our humanity with all its pain and confusion. He has stepped into our humanity. And he steps into your turmoil. You and Christ, you're in the same boat. He stepped into the boat. He's quite handy in a storm. The glory of God is seen in God's Son. Secondly, the glory of God is seen in God's mercy. So while the people are eating and drinking with their golden calf, Moses is on the mountain with God, and God tells him what's going on. And the first thing God does is make him an offer. Uh, God will destroy Israel and start again with Moses. I will make you into a great nation. Moses can be done with these troublesome Israelites who have caused him so much hassle. And then Moses can be the father of a new nation. Must have been tempting. Been tempting to me anyway. But Moses stands by God's people fully commits himself to them. In fact, he intercedes for them. It's impressive. And it gets more impressive. After Moses has destroyed the golden calf and quelled the riot, he again intercedes with God on their behalf. If you've got your Bibles open, look at uh, uh, chapter 32, verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin. But now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Wow. In other words, if you're going to destroy these people, then destroy me along with them. 
I will stand by these people even if it means I die with these people. He's going to stand by God's people to the point of death. Could you imagine saying that? For your local church? I will stand with these people even if it means I go to hell with these people. The only way, I think, to make sense of it is to see that Moses here is pointing us forward to the Lord Jesus. Moses, in this chapter, is the mediator between God and his people. And the the story is set up, I think, to emphasize that. That's why God declares that he will destroy Israel and then relents. It's to highlight the mediation of Moses. In fact, to be honest, if if Exodus 32 was the only chapter of the Bible that you had ever read, I think you would get the impression that God was rather petulant and had to be talked round. The focus is on Moses, and I think that's the point. The story is intended to show us the need for a mediator, a mediator actually that God himself has provided in his mercy and at his initiative. It points us forward to Christ. Moses, his chosen one, says Psalm 116, stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying them. That's a description of Christ. At the cross, Christ himself placed himself between God's wrath and us. Sergeant Major John Robson Osborne was the first Canadian to be awarded the Victoria Cross in the Second World War. On the 19th of December, 1941, he and his men were fighting in Hong Kong. This is is the citation that was, was the reason why he was given the Victoria Cross. During the afternoon, the company was cut off from the battalion and completely surrounded by the enemy, who were able to approach to within grenade throwing distance of the slight depression which the company was holding. Several enemy grenades were thrown, which Company Sergeant Major Osborne picked up and threw back. The enemy threw a grenade which landed in a position where it was impossible to pick it up and return it in time. Shouting a warning to his comrades, this gallant warrant officer threw himself on the grenade, which exploded, killing him instantly. His self-sacrifice undoubtedly saved the lives of many others. It's a little picture of what happened at the cross. At the cross, as it were, Jesus threw himself on the wrath of God. He absorbed the explosion of God's judgment. His self-sacrifice undoubtedly saved the lives of many others, including yours, if you're a Christian. When the time comes for me to punish, says God in 33, 34, I will punish them for their sin. Judgment is postponed. But there must be judgment. That time came at the cross. Jesus stands by us, just as Moses does, to the point of death. But he doesn't die with us, he dies for us. At Calvary, Jesus hung in darkness in our place he was blotted out of God's book 
but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written, says Moses in 32. Verse 32. As Jesus hung on the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them. And that forgiveness is granted because Jesus is blotted out. Well, look at the name that God reveals to Moses. The shorthand version is the Lord, but God needs a big name to kind of capture who he is. So look at uh, verse 6, 34, chapter 34, verse 6. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. How can a holy God live among sinful people? Because God is compassionate and gracious. There is hope in God's name because his name is full of mercy. God's glory is seen in his compassion and grace and love. That little revelation of his name is preceded by instructions to make two new tablets of stone. It's a sign that God's people can start over again. Story isn't over. First set of tablets get broken, but... Not the promises that they represent, those still stand. And yet God's name contains an apparent contradiction. He is the God who forgives sin, and yet he's also the God who does not leave the guilty unpunished. He both forgives my sin and punishes my sin. So which is it? And the answer comes at the cross. As Christ bears my guilt in my place, the penalty is paid in full. And that means that God both forgives my sin and punishes my sin. He forgives my sin, but he punishes my sin in Christ. And so he is true to his name. As the God who both forgives sin and does not leave the guilty unpunished. It's, a, it's, a, it's an answer, it's a resolution that doesn't lessen God's mercy in any way. Quite the opposite, it takes us deeper and further into God's mercy. This is God's glory. It's, not, it's God's glory. What, what is so glorious about God is it's not just his power, but his mercy, the depths of his mercy. His glory is the perfections of his attributes. We see the glory of God is the perfection of his holiness and his justice and his love and his mercy. And we see all those things at the cross. There is no other God like our God who dies for his people. Nothing like it has been seen anywhere else in history. Nothing like it has been conceived anywhere else in history. So when we get to heaven, when we get to the new creation, what I suspect that what our eyes will be fixated on will not be the fireworks or the gold or the angel choirs. What will grab our attention will be the wounds of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is God's glory. The glory of God is seen in God's Son. The glory of God is seen in God's mercy. 
And then finally, the glory of God is seen in God's word. At this point, you might be thinking, if only I could have seen what Moses saw. It would have been amazing. It would have been life-changing. Or perhaps you're thinking, well, it's all well and good saying we see the glory of God in Christ, but I haven't seen Christ. I wasn't there. I wasn't there on the, uh, on the lake as the storm blew up. I haven't seen the Lord Jesus. But look closely at God's response when Moses asks to see his glory. Look again, if you've got your Bibles open, at chapter 33, verse 19. First of all, God says, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. And second, I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. Moses will be shown God's glory by hearing God's name doesn't actually get to see God's glory. Uh, the revelation of, doesn't come through his eyes. In fact, we're told that God puts his hand over Moses' eyes. It actually comes through his ears. Moses sees God's glory by hearing God's name. Or jump forward to the end of uh, chapter 34. You remember how when Moses comes down from the mountain after this experience, in fact, you don't have to remember it, let's remind ourselves, uh, chapter 34, verse 30, when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. It seems that they sort of start edging away, and he has to call them back over. And then to sort of cope with this sort of fear, he puts a veil over his face whenever he speaks to the people, and only in God's presence is the veil removed. Now, I suspect there is some sense in which that afterglow of God's glory set left some kind of luminescent imprint on Moses' face. But look carefully at what the text says. Look at Exodus 34, verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. It's not seeing the Lord that makes the face of Moses radiant. It is speaking with the Lord. He had spoken with the Lord. What Moses heard is what matters. That's how he sees the glory of God. That's what makes him radiant. And Paul does his own kind of reflection on this in 2 Corinthians 3. Paul says there's a sense in which that veil is still there to this day, not literally, but kind of uh, in a kind of a symbolic sense, hiding the reflected glory of God on Moses' face as a sort of spiritual veil that blinds people to God's glory in his word. But then he says, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Our spiritual blindness is taken away so that we see the glory of God in the person of Christ. He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. The, the, the glory of God and the glory of his presence is seen in Christ. And it's life-changing. 
Paul says, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. The more we contemplate God's glory in Christ, the more we reflect God's glory. We become like Moses. We become radiant. We are radiating the glory of God. By hearing God's voice, we see God's glory By seeing God's glory, we reflect God's glory. We become radiant people. You want to be a radiant person? It's not not down to some beauty regime. It comes by seeing the glory of God in Christ, lit up by God's glory. What you look at determines who you are what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. The focus of your attention will shape your attitudes and your priorities. If your focus is adverts, peers, media, then you will almost certainly become conformed to the pattern of this world. But when we turn to Jesus, says Paul, we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that transforms us so that we bring light to the world around us. Paul says that what Moses experienced was glorious, no doubt about that. But he says our experience of Christ is even more glorious. In fact, he goes a little bit further. He says what Moses saw has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. I mean, you know, no doubt what Moses experienced was glorious, but when you measure it against Christ, it hardly counts. And then he says, as we continue to contemplate Christ, we experience ever-increasing glory. So we've had glory, and then super glory, and then even more glory. Okay, but how is it that we contemplate the glory of Christ? Where do we see the glory of Christ? When 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul says, the light of the gospel displays the glory of Christ. The light of the gospel displays displays the glory of Christ. Like Moses, we see God's glory by hearing God's word. But the word that we hear is the gospel of Christ. Donald McCulloch says, when the gospel is preached, Christ walks among his people. It's the miracle of Christmas all over again. Christ clothed himself in humanity, spurning the language of angels to speak with the tongues of mortals. Perhaps there are doubts that uh, disturb you, fears that consume you, guilt that weighs upon your heart, sins that dog you. What should you do? How can you be transformed? By contemplating the Lord's glory by fixing your eyes on Jesus, by seeing God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And how do you do that? By hearing the gospel of Christ. And then the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, will speak his word of life and light into your heart. So that's my final application. Look at Christ. See the glory of God in the story of Christ. And maybe you're thinking, well, that's not very practical, is it? I was hoping for something a little bit more concrete. Well, Paul says there is nothing more life-changing 
than to look at Christ. Or uh, listen to these, let me close with these words from John Owen, the great 17th century Puritan. This is what he says. Some talk much of imitating Christ and following his example. But no man will ever become like him by trying to imitate his behavior and life if they know nothing of the transforming power of beholding his glory. Make up your mind that to behold the glory of God by beholding the glory of Christ is the greatest privilege which is given to believers in this life. This is the dawning of heaven. Let us regard it as our duty to meditate frequently on his glory. It is the neglect of meditation that keeps so many Christians in a feeble state. A constant view of the glory of Christ will revive our souls and cause our spiritual lives to flourish and thrive. Our souls will be revived by the transforming power with which beholding Christ is always accompanied. This is what transforms us daily into the likeness of Christ. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. It's hardly a thank you is hardly enough, but what else can we do? We thank you that what Moses could not see, we have seen in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you have come and pitched your tent among us, and we have seen your glory, the glory of the one and only Son. And we thank you that that experience is available to each and every one of us as we read your word in the power of the Spirit. You continue to speak to us. You continue to reveal yourself to us. You continue to show us the glory of Christ. And I pray that you would make us hungry for that. That all those instincts for glory would not be uh, sort of um, invested in the fading glories of this world, but would be invested in Christ. And that uh, for each one here, that experience would be transforming. That we would move from glory to glory. And that our lives would be radiant, transformed. And that we would be lights in a lost, dark world. In Jesus' name. Amen.